Autonomous Cars with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the Robots Podcast, episode 170. My name is Jana, and today is all about self-driving vehicles and a huge new testing facility in Michigan. But first, as always, here are the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. Robotics is seeing increased government investment in the United States. November 20th, the National Science Foundation, NSF, announced 31.5 million US dollars, about 25 million euros, in new awards to spur the development and use of co-robots, robots that work cooperatively with people. The 52 new research awards, ranging from $300,000 to $1.8 million, seek to advance fundamental understanding of robotic sensing, motion, computer vision, machine learning, and human-computer interaction. The awards include research to develop soft robots that are safer for human interaction, to determine how humans can lead teams of robots in recovery situations, and to design robots that can check aging infrastructure and map remote geographic areas. Pramod Karganekar, Assistant Director of NSF's Engineering Directorate, said, The National Robotics Initiative serves the national good by encouraging collaboration among academic, industry, nonprofit, and other organizations, and by speeding creation of fundamental science and engineering knowledge base used by researchers, application developers, and industry. The Perker case was a landmark for UAV legislation. In 2011, Raphael Perker was fined $10,000, about 8,000 euros, by the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, for using a UAV for aerial footage on the University of Virginia's campus. The fine was dismissed after Mr. Brennan Schulman, a prominent pro-drone lawyer, challenged the charge based on the fact that the FAA can regulate aircraft, which excludes model aircraft in their definition. However, on November 18th, the National Transportation Safety Board has issued a decision that current federal regulations apply to manned aircraft as well as UAVs. The updated definition says that FAA regulation applies to any aircraft, manned or unmanned, large or small. In essence, this could mean that the flight of a paper plane or a toy wood balsa glider could subject the operator to FAA penalties in the United States. Now it is up to the drone community to mobilize and try to influence the decision-making of the FAA. For more information on robotic investment and drone regulations, visit robohub.org. Over the last year, autonomous vehicles have made the headlines more than once. For instance, when Google launched its self-driving car, or when researchers in Singapore started to test autonomous golf carts in a public park. We've covered quite a few of those stories, including the ethical controversies surrounding driverless cars, on robohub.org. 
Now we thought it's about time for a podcast on the topic. So our interviewer Aldro arranged to speak to Edwin Olson, an associate professor from the University of Michigan, about the university's 32-acre testing environment for autonomous cars and the future of driverless vehicles. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Edwin Olson. I'm an associate professor at the University of Michigan in the computer science department. I my main research areas are artificial intelligence, computer science, and robotics. What is your experience with driverless cars? Well, back in 2007, I was on the MIT team working up towards the DARPA Urban Challenge. I was one of a number of students who did a lot of the software development for that project. And uh, ultimately, we took our vehicle to the DARPA Urban Challenge and came in fourth. So I've, I've gotten to play with a lot of the different aspects of an autonomous system, ranging from the physical sensors to uh, modifying the vehicle for drive-by-wire control to uh, path planning and obstacle detection. How are you related to the construction of the fake city that's going on at the University of Michigan? Yeah, so we call it the Mobility Transformation Facility, and it's a, a 32-acre facility uh, that's going to be coming online later this fall. The, this test center is under the umbrella of what we call the Mobility Transformation Center, uh, which, is a, uh, which is under the umbrella of the University of Michigan. I'm on the steering committee, the faculty steering committee for that, and uh, we're also likely to be one of the main users of that test facility as we work on our autonomous car. Can you tell us more about the city? Yes. It's really a mock urban environment. Uh, it's, it's got signaled lights. So if you're imagining a, 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 an oval where people are driving around in circles, it's not that at all. It's a network of roads with stop signs and rotaries and uh, traffic lights. Uh, one of the things that's, that's really interesting about it is that the test facility itself is, is really a robot. We anticipate that we'll be writing a huge amount of code for the test facility, and the test facility will be an active participant in testing our autonomous car. One of the things you can do, for example, is to allow the test facility to know where the car is and to trigger a traffic light to turn red at just the wrong moment. And the same thing goes for the artificial pedestrians and the other instrumentation on the facility. These aren't passive things. These are things that we're going to be writing code for to try to make the, the testing much more interesting and challenging. Can you talk a bit more about the test cases? So you mentioned that it's at exactly the wrong time. So you anticipate trying to probe the limits of what the software of what you have in the autonomous cars? Yeah, so we've tried to make the test facility have uh, constrained by budget one of everything. So when we drive around the test facility, there are dirt roads modeled after country roads. And there are urban roads that are two lanes. There are rotaries, four-way intersections. There's actually even a section with four or five lanes uh, because that's a, a testing environment that we need to, to model. There's a section with freeway so we can handle merging and uh, higher speeds. So really our philosophy was one of everything. We've got a variety of different types of crosswalk paint. We've got a range of, of uh, the dashed lines that separate lanes. We've got some that are brand new, some that are going to be deliberately degraded. We really want to test everything that we can in this facility. And this is really to overcome a huge recurring problem in developing autonomous cars in that 
testing on roadways, on, on real roadways, is dangerous. You're putting other people at risk. One of the challenges that you have in developing an autonomous car is getting enough test coverage to, to believe that that vehicle's really working. You can go on real roadways, but real roads have two problems. And the first is that you're testing with other people who haven't had the opportunity to provide informed consent. And uh, you know, you're experiment unwittingly, and, and there's some ethical issues that arise from that. But the second issue is that accumulating a representative set of different experiences so to, to see the full variety of road paint and crossings and traffic light styles would require thousands and thousands of road miles. By concentrating that, we'd really be able to accelerate the development of the technology. With this new test environment, are you going to focus on conquering environmental challenges such as snow? I think one of the great things about being in Michigan is that we do have lousy weather, and uh, that really makes things a lot more interesting. For example, one of the first things that we found when we fired up our car uh, in the last year or so was uh, that the tailpipe condensation was triggering our obstacle detector. And so the car thought that it was being eaten by a gigantic monster uh, coming out of its tailpipe. Uh, nonetheless, uh, obviously we had to do something about that. So we've, we've had the opportunity by seeing these weird things that happen in bad weather to try to build a more robust and more capable system. One of my favorite stories about bad weather is uh, if you're driving down in fresh fallen snow, what do you do? Well, you try to follow the tracks of the guy who went before you, right? If you can't see the lane markings anyway, you just follow their tire, tire rut. And uh, this is not what current vehicles would do. First of all, they would get hopelessly lost if they couldn't see the, the road paint. Uh, but they also try to stay in lane. Even if they could figure out where they are using GPS or, or whatever else, they would try desperately hard to stay in the legal lanes. But that's not what people would do. Now, our vehicle can't handle that situation yet either. But I think being in Michigan helps us think about some of these difficult cases that are going to be really important. Can you talk a bit about your vehicle? Yeah, our vehicle is uh, based on a 2014 Fusion uh, Ford Fusion Hybrid. It's uh, a beautiful vehicle. If you sit in it, you would hardly know that it is autonomous, except that there's a, an emergency stop button embedded near the coffee holder. And uh, on the outside, it looks a little bit different. It kind of looks like a reindeer. It's got two little antlers sticking up from the middle of the, the roof. And these antlers are are 32-beam LIDARs. So we have a total of 42 laser rangefinders, which we call LIDARs, uh, so for a total of 128 uh, rangefinder beams. And these sensors are really our primary way of understanding what's around the car. We use them for obstacle detection. We use them for recognizing road paint. And they collect about 2.5 million 3D points per second for us to process. On the, uh, the rest of the car is, uh, in the back trunk, is mostly filled with computers and, and inertial measurement units and, and things like that. One of the things about our vehicle is that it doubles as both a survey vehicle and the autonomous car. So one of our models is that you would, might have a more expensive vehicle that would go and map the roadway initially, but then a cheaper vehicle could go through and actually localize and do the driving later on. Uh, for our purposes, 
we only have the one vehicle just for sanity. So uh, one thing we try to remind people is that when you see our vehicle, which looks a little bit, uh, it's got a, a full trunk, this is not what we'd be thinking about in terms of a consumer vehicle. Being a survey vehicle, do you think that it has the onboard sensing capabilities to, for example, follow the tracks in snow? You know, that's a tough question. In principle, yeah, yeah, humans can look out of a, a Mark I eyeball and clearly figure out where to drive, and we've got cameras. The question is, can, can the robot do this sufficiently reliably to be useful? And uh, that's a question we're not really going to be able to answer until we sit down and give it a go. You know, trying to follow that sort of slushy rut carved out by the car in front of you, uh, that's going to be pretty hard because, of course, there's not just one rut. You've got a history of other ruts left by car, you know, the history of cars that came before you. And there's still sort of a judgment call of which rut should you follow. And, uh, you know, God help you, if, if one of those people slipped across the center line, you don't want to follow that rut. And so there's a, a lot of judgment and decision-making that has to go into that on top of the basic sensing of where's the rut. Going back to the mock urban city, what has been the reaction of other universities? Well, I think a lot of people are really excited by the facility. I think you look at some of the concept artwork and you can immediately tell that this is not your run-of-the-mill test center. We've got a lot of interest from other people who want to come and use our facility. In terms of other universities, one of the, the unfortunate consequences of, of Google being uh, so prominent in the field is that uh, a lot of the academic work has, has dried up. And so what used to be a, a rather large field of universities working on autonomous cars has really dwindled down to just a handful. I think with the mobility transformation facility, though, the University of Michigan is going to be one of the, the leaders as we move forward, not just because of the University of Michigan, but because of all of the industrial activity that is also coming to Michigan or started off in Michigan, as the case may be, uh, that's, that really forms a, a, a nexus for next-generation vehicle development. What kind of major problems do you seek to address in this test facility? There's a, a few things that we want to ultimately achieve. The first one is just the pragmatic aspects of, hey, we're developing an autonomous car. Where are we going to test this thing safely? And how are we going to develop some confidence that when we say it's safe, that it really is safe? And having a, a mock city where we don't have uh, civilians potentially in danger is, is a real part of that strategy. In the longer longer view, there's a lot of technologies that will be coming out of autonomous car research, things like connected vehicles, uh, but even maybe regulatory aspects of suppose car maker X proposes an autonomous driving system, should there be some, some testing procedure in place, maybe a federally mandated testing procedure to validate it? And so we're not saying that the mobility transformation facility will be that test site, but we think we, we do have a lot of faculty members who are interested in trying to experiment with what these protocols might be. And the f test facility is going to be a great laboratory for developing those testing procedures. Okay, I want to get your perspectives on a few issues relating to autonomous cars. So the first one is uh, cybersecurity issues. People are worried about their car being hacked into and controlled or tracked. They should be concerned. 
uh, you know, we have some computer security researchers here in the computer science department. Uh, they they ran a, a electronic voting experiment, and uh, you know, the our team walks in, and when they come out, the voting machine is playing "Hail to the Victors." It, you know, these things can be. You've got an electronic voting machine which is uh, putatively designed to be hack-proof, right? Because our very democracy it, it relies on these things being reliable and hack-proof. Uh, but they're easily compromised. And an autonomous car needs to be similarly hack-proof. It's not acceptable if someone can uh, send a packet to your car and that car decides to leap off the roadway. Right? There, there's a real opportunity for, for mayhem if the security is not handled correctly. And I think, unfortunately, the system that we're talking about here, an autonomous car, is a lot more complicated than a voting machine that autonomous car is collecting data from a huge number of data sources, sensors both locally and potentially remotely off the car. It's combining these things with user input devices from a human driver, like a steering wheel, and it's trying to make decisions and send these things back out, possibly over radio, back out to the actuators itself. In other words, the sort of surface area of this target from a, a security perspective is enormous. There's hundreds of places where you could potentially attack this system. And securing it is a, is a real point of concern. That's one of the reasons why our own research really focuses on individual vehicle competence. So we, we think that one of the, uh, a really good way to, to handle the security issue is to make sure that the vehicle is safe on its own and that it doesn't require messages from other vehicles in order to know where they are and whether a dangerous situation is coming up. If the vehicle is competent internally, then it doesn't have to expose nearly so much to the outside world. And so that's something we think is really important. But there's still the issue of the digital short-range communication radios, which uh, there's been a lot of activity in, you know, where the notion where the cars are all going to be talking to each other and there's, there's a fundamental question of, are these radios going to be participating in security functions? I'm sorry, excuse me, safety functions? In other words, uh, will my car send your car a message saying, hey, quick, slam on the brakes? Or will it be involved in more traffic optimization type of things like, hey, traffic light, uh, I'm going to be near you in 30 seconds. It'd, be, it'd just be peachy if the light was green. Right? The latter could provide still a lot of benefit, but doesn't expose nearly the safety and security risks as, hey, you, slam on the brakes now. Another issue, if a, an autonomous car causes damage or casualties, who is liable for that damage? Uh, is this a big issue that autonomous cars are facing? So I don't think anybody really knows where how the liability thing is going to resolve. Some of the companies that are our partners in the Mobility Transformation Center are insurance companies, and they're joining exactly to try to understand what the future might be. But I don't think anyone really knows right now. And also, I've heard of uh, worry about having autonomous cars take up too much of the radio frequency spectrum uh, for their communication, and that being an issue. Yeah, so the DSRC radios uh, sit at about 5.9 gigahertz. It's about a 75 megahertz wide channel. Uh, you could do a lot with that, that frequency if, if you didn't need it. On the other hand, 
uh, there's a lot of social good that could come out of these radios working properly and, and contributing to a safer driving environment. We've got 32,000 people dying on U.S. roadways every year, and uh, it's, it's a leading cause of death for a lot of people uh, for a lot of different age groups. And so I think um, giving up a little bit of, of bandwidth to support that is, is a worthwhile exchange. Now, I'm wondering, so in December 2013, Michigan legalized driverless cars. How does that affect your research? So when, when Michigan legalized driver, driverless cars, what they effectively did was they created an explicit carve-out for uh, manufacturers of automated technology to operate on roadways. Now, a funny thing, maybe unique to Michigan, is because we're the home of major automotive manufacturers, there's already been a mechanism for testing, uh, testing vehicles on roadways before they were commercializable products. Uh, basically, if you had a manufacturer's plate on your car, you could, could do, I'm not going to say anything, but you could get away with quite a lot. Now there's a, a legal framework that explicitly enumerates autonomous vehicle testing as one of the things you can do. So the reality is it didn't change a whole lot, but it certainly helped spread the message that uh, you should come to Michigan to test your cars because there's an explicit carve-out for that. And uh, an interesting note is that uh, universities in Michigan qualify for these manufacturer plates. With Google saying that in 2018 they want their systems available to car manufacturers, and the University of Michigan was saying that they want vehicles on the street by 2021. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I think that there's a lot of the, the date guessing is uh, really just that. It's a guess. When will the technology be ready? It's, it's hard to say, and it depends on exactly what problem you're aiming to solve. If you're talking about an autonomous vehicle that can handle the full spectrum of driving tasks that a human can handle, and that means everything from urban to freeway with other human, uh, human drivers and you know, crazy pedestrians jaywalking, uh, we're talking a long time from now. We're not talking 2018 or 2020. We're, we're talking decades. But there's a lot of good that we can achieve in the shorter term by carving out simpler, simpler problem domains and trying to get those to work. So Google has talked a lot about their, their new, new small vehicle that lacks a steering wheel. Uh, this, is, this is something that we can potentially do. If you limit the speed of a, a vehicle to 25 miles per hour or so, there's a whole lot less kinetic energy involved. And so the risk of actually killing someone uh, drops dramatically. And so if the risk of bodily harm goes down, then you can really start thinking about all of the social good that can come out of an autonomous transportation system. Things, and, and I'm not just talking about driver convenience where I'd rather read the newspaper while I'm going to work. I'm also talking about uh, people who are unable to drive because maybe they're, they're old or they have failing eyesight. We want to connect those people. In, in the United States, it's very hard to be someone who can't get around in a car. We're sort of a car culture. And so if we can scope down some of these problems and say, hey, look, good, we can achieve a lot of societal good at 25 miles per hour in a, in a small little car made out of foam, um, then we should do that. And I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge for us to figure out where the technology can make an impact earlier than later, because we don't want to wait decades to start addressing the, uh, the number of traffic deaths. The other thing I'll add to this is that there's really a, a dichotomy in, in strategies for autonomous cars. There are basically two ways to go. You can, on the one hand, go for full autonomy, 
which is great, right? That's where there's no steering wheel and, and the human is not engaged at all. Or you can go in the direction where a human is nominally sitting in the driver's seat. And recently there's been a few videos circulating where the person who was supposed to be sitting in the driver's seat crawled in the back seat. And uh, uh, by the way, don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea. But this is, this is really symptomatic of a human factors issue. If the human perceives that the vehicle is getting the job done, is, is, is mostly working, they're going to cognitively disengage from the driving process. And that means that the vehicle, when it does need the help from the human driver, isn't going to be ready and able to render that help. And so if you're going to build a vehicle that has a human uh, at the steering wheel, you need to, I, I, th I think what we're going to see is that we're going to see um, systems that require the human to remain cognitively engaged in the driving process. As, as long as we're in the, the realm where the human needs to intervene, we, we can't, we can't allow them to have super cruise control where, where, they, where they can take their hands off the wheel and the hands off the pedals because then they're not going to be ready or able to help when an incident actually arrives. The alternative is that it's kind of like going bumper bowling, right? You've got your hand on the steering wheel and you're actually driving the car, but the car prevents you from doing dumb things, right? Which is a different way of viewing autonomy. The car could drive, but it's choosing not to in order to address this human factors issue of how do you keep the human cognitively engaged in the driving process. Cars now already do that to some extent. Uh, some of the higher end brands, don't they, they make sure that you stay in your lane, they'll veer you back if you deviate, as well as assisting you in braking should cars be stopped ahead? Yeah, so I think the, the industry is really sort of experimenting between how much should the human be informed of versus how much should the vehicle just do? So, for example, in the forward collision mitigation thing where, where you've got a right in front of the vehicle, um, you know, there's a question. If, if the car thinks it's, it's closing too quickly on the vehicle in front of it, uh, should it beep at the driver so that they, they know that there's an issue or should it apply brakes? And uh, there was a, a study done recently where they looked at this capability and if you just beep and draw the human's driver to the fact that there's a dangerous situation emerging, uh, you get a 15% reduction in the overall property damage claims. If you allow the vehicle to add the brakes automatically, uh, that, that same figure only went up to 16%. So you, know, you get a 1% additional benefit by having the vehicle uh, brake autonomously. So you know, what, what, I don't know if that's noise or signal. But, you know, it, it certainly seems to be the case that keeping the human cognitively engaged, if you can keep that human engaged in driving, uh, humans are great drivers. Do you say that it's a race or collaboration between Google and universities? Well, I think that almost everyone involved in this game is keeping their cards pretty close to their chest. And I think, I think that really reflects the fact that it's a, uh, an incredibly competitive competitive industry to play in and there's a lot of dollars at play really the future of our transportation system is is it hangs in the balance and uh and so what you don't see is a lot of collaboration google doesn't really talk about their technology very much they'll they'll give demos but uh you know they're certainly not publishing their source uh or writing a lot of academic papers and the same thing is true of the OEMs and tier ones that are all working on this as well. Everybody's kind of playing it, uh, playing it close to their chest.
What do you expect for legalization of driverless cars? Uh, it looks like uh, so California, Nevada, Michigan as of recently, Florida, um, and then Iowa very recently, as well as the UK have legalized driverless cars. Uh, do you see the rest of the states and many countries following? I think a lot of the legalization that we see so far are are really uh, government carve-outs for autonomous car research. And I think that's going to spread very rapidly because no state wants to be known as the, the state of Luddites who, are, who don't want to support research and development in their state. Uh, so as far as, as extending the, uh, this, this notion of legal autonomous cars to commercial vehicles, uh, I think the states are, are appropriately hesitant to start passing legislation on this. Until we have some understanding for what the, the, uh, the liability situation is going to be like, you know, who, who's responsible for an accident, until we have some understanding of what the impacts on licensing for, for, road, uh, for the vehicle operator should be, uh, I think it's, it's really appropriate for the states to say, we'll deal, we'll deal with the legalization of products, commercializable products that an end user can buy when the technology is a little bit closer and we can ask the right questions. Do you have any advice for young researchers and aspiring roboticists? No, I think robotics is a, a pretty special discipline in a lot of ways in that it's, it's inherently multidisciplinary. Right? You need to be able to code. You benefit a lot from being able to build your own robots, being able to write firmware, lay out circuit boards, do the mechanical engineering. You know, a robot really is not working at peak form unless you understand how the whole system works together. And so my advice for someone who wants to get involved in robots is to, to go out there and start building robots and, and play with all the aspects of the system and, and get a, a really well-rounded background. Now, at some point, you might need to decide that you're going to, be, uh, you're, you're going to focus on robot perception or you're going to focus on path planning. But having that background of understanding how the whole system fits together is incredibly useful. What advice do you wish someone had given you when you were 20 years old? When I was 20 years old, uh, that I would have just been an undergrad by then. And uh, you know, at that point, I was studying computer science and elect- electrical engineering. And uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. I, in fact, before, before that, I thought I wanted to be, go into aerospace. And uh, so I started off doing research in um, software systems. And then I played around with microarchitecture. And uh, I think to a large degree, it just never occurred to me to go and be a roboticist. And I had been building robots for a long time, and I was running robotics competitions at MIT. Uh, but for some reason, it just never connected in my brain that I could be a roboticist. And so I wish someone had come ba- gone back and said, go be a roboticist. That's, that's what you love to do, and uh, you're good at it, so go and do it. And so I, I, guess, I guess maybe the, the advice here would that might be applicable to other people would be, you know, look at your, your hobbies very carefully and, and ask yourself if there's a career in that for you. If you can get a job that you love, then, then that's a wonderful thing. And I just had some, some, a blind spot to the fact that I could pursue robotics as a career. Wrapping up, what do you think is the future of robotics? That's a, a broad question. You know, I think we, we, always have this sort of uh, aggressive timeline where there are going to be androids walking around and android butlers and 
And, uh, you know, all that could eventually come to be. But I think the, the near-term future, and, and I'm talking our lifespans here, is going to be a little bit more modest. I think a lot of the robotics technologies that we have uh, are already enhancing our lives in one way or another, whether it's, you know, a face recognition algorithm running on Google Glass or, or just uh, your car having, being able to tell where it is in its lane by combining GPS data with an atlas of, of, uh, of the buildings around it. Now, these, these are our basic components in robotics. And robotics is oftentimes decomposed into sensing, thinking, and acting. And uh, you know, combining all three of those into a, uh, an autonomous car might be a long way out. But the sensing is definitely there. The thinking is, is definitely there. And, and, and the planning is, is maybe not quite there. Um, but you already have things like electronic stability control and anti-lock braking systems where the vehicle is is interpreting what you meant to do and is commanding the brakes and steering wheel to do something different anyway. So I think, I think basically the, the future is going to be robotics everywhere, but they're not going to look like what you thought they were going to look like in the, in the Jetson age. They're not going to be actual robots driving around that much. Uh, it's going to be mostly all those technologies embedded into the products that we're already accustomed to. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. But before you go, we'd like to invite you to take part in our annual festive season competition. Every year, the Robots Podcast runs this competition. And every year, we get some amazing entries to share with our listeners. Whether it's a video or audio recording, get into the festive spirit and submit your entry. Anyone can join and instructions on how to submit can be found on our website at robotspodcast.com. You can also check out some of the impressive entries from previous years on our YouTube channel. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Autonomous Cars with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.